Welcome to Building Stronger Communities, a presentation of MRB Group and our Smarter Local Gov team. MRB Group has been supporting local governments for nearly a century with engineering, architecture, and infrastructure development, and our Smarter Local Gov team has been designed to tackle community development and management challenges facing our local government partners. This podcast features conversations with professionals and community leaders sharing stories, information, and resources that come from a municipal knowledge base that's 100 years in the making. From the James R. Gresson studio in the historic Culver Road Armory, this is Building Stronger Communities. Okay, welcome back everybody. We, uh, we're excited today to talk about a topic that really impacts uh, a whole chunk of communities that, that we all work in. Uh, you know, uh, we do a lot of work, particularly in the Northeast, but certainly around the country where these legacy projects um, or, or the, the way people remember these legacy industrial projects, manufacturing projects and, uh, and other uh, kind of uh, relics of economic developments past uh, have left some kind of an imprint on the environment. And, uh, and whether that's a, a real or perceived imprint, uh, this, this idea of brownfield redevelopment has, uh, has certainly started to take shape in the last, uh, the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And so today we're super excited to have uh, a couple of folks on the line with us who have dealt extensively in this environment and, uh, and can help to, uh, to walk a community through, hey, what do we do about this particular challenge, this idea of real or perceived uh, environmental impact and, uh, and the, the ensuing planning process that, that might support redevelopment. So, uh, so joining us today is Lisa Nagel. Uh, Lisa is a founding principal of Elan Planning and Design. She's practiced strategic planning, visioning, and goal setting, and as and economic development for over three decades. She has a track record of developing consensus-based plans with a focus on implementation. Uh, welcome, Lisa. Thanks, Matt. Thank and I, you. you know, I, I we joke about this uh, every so often, but you know that that last that last uh, little phrase there it just it just rings all of our bells you know this idea of consensus based planning um implementation this idea that the recommendations that come out of lisa's plans uh, are never pie in the sky they're really focused on uh on advancing a community's really to total health uh, and also with us today speaking of pie uh is uh is michael indolo who you all know as Smarter Local Gov's Director of Economic Development. Uh, Michael supports communities around the country with a, a wide variety of economic development challenges. He and Lisa have worked together uh, extensively and, uh, and they've both looked at, at kind of these challenging properties uh, with, with a whole variety of, of issues and challenges and, um, and certainly environmental condition being one of those. So, so I guess we'll just dive right in. I think we try to uh, we try to break down these topics so that they're not too jargony, that we're not using vocabulary that's not in uh, in everybody's toolkit. So, so maybe just this term brownfield, Lisa. What what do we mean uh, when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about redeveloping a brownfield? What exactly is that? Yeah. Um... So I'm going to start with sort of the technical <laughs> definition, but then we're going to sure. oh, we'll break it down into how like you know how we we look at brownfields. But the EPA actually has a definition, and and we use it, um, and it's applicable, but you know it's a little jargony. Uh, but then I'll break it down as you said. So um, the EPA, in, in a simplified, shortened version, is that a brownfield is a property where 
the expansion, redevelopment, or reuse might be complicated by the presence of potential or potential presence of contamination. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be contaminated, it could be potentially contaminated. And we all have these, as you said, in our communities where a developer might not buy a particular property because they think that there might be potentially contaminated. Technically, that's a brownfield. Um, but we like to simplify it and say, you know, as opposed to greenfield development, right, where you might have a blank uh, field or an area within your community where somebody's building a new um, subdivision or a commercial um, development. And these sites, these brownfield sites are re really places where there was previously development, um, commercial industrial development. In upstate New York, where we work extensively with you, um, you know, these are typically along our waterfronts. Uh, you know, the Mohawk River, the Hudson River, uh, and um, Genesee River and other places. And, you know, the, what we like to think of these sites are not just brownfields, but really underutilized sites. And that might be that this vacant site might not have a contamination, but it might have a building that's been vacant for a long time, or it might be just a nice piece of property that uh, people aren't interested in. So we like to kind of take the the mystery out, if you will, um, because it's really about redeveloping our underutilized sites and, and communities um, throughout upstate New York. Yeah, and I've, I've, uh, this is Michael Mandolo here. I've enjoyed, Lisa, working with you over the years on these projects. It's just a, been a wonderful experience. Um, and one of the questions we often get, and, and I'd love for you to speak to about it a little bit, is you know, how do communities get involved? Like, what's the way that they tie into the brownfield redevelopment process. Yeah, yeah, you know, I would say, you know, early in the, um, you know, 1990s to 2000s, communities were focused on one particular site, it might be a gas station or a dry cleaner or an old industrial building. And, you know, fortunately there are resources through say the US EPA or even the uh, New York State um, Environmental um, Funds to investigate those individual properties determine if they are contaminated and if they are, how do we get the property cleaned up? Then communities would obviously seek some uh, um, cleanup money to clean up those properties. But really in the late 2000s, around 2010, the New York State Department of State came out with a program called the Brownfield Opportunity Area Program, an area being, I'll emphasize area, because it's really about multiple acreages, right? So it might be 200 acres to 500 acres. And then there's multiple properties within that area. And those multiple properties could can be brownfield and underutilized sites. So what I like about the New York State program, the Brownfield Opportunity or BOA program, is it allows us to really think comprehensively about an area, not just one site. It's Obviously, it's great to get sites identified and cleaned up, but if we think about 200 acres and getting a few sites identified and cleaned up, now that whole neighborhood, the whole downtown area, the whole waterfront area, is becoming revitalized and it's being catalyzed by sites within that area. Um, there's a lot of resources from Department of State. There's actually grant money to prepare a BOA plan. Um, and then EPA has really gotten into this game as well, US EPA, following the same sort of notion of what they call reuse planning. So how am I going to reuse the site or these sites in the context of the area around it. So, um, and then, you know, there's also a lot of technical assistance out there, like from nonprofits. So like the one that comes to mind is the Center for Creative Land Recycling. They're here in New York State um, in California, um, and they were a technical assistance provider for the EPA, but they hold a conference that, you know, we've been to every year um, when we were able to be in person, but they have switched over to virtual and uh, where a lot of the communities come together from upstate New York and share their stories about getting these sites redevelopment, redeveloped and 
that's a great place to start if you're really kind of unsure, like you might have a legacy site in your community or the white elephant or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes you come to these conferences and see that other communities really have the same thing and how they've dealt with it through the BOA program or the EPA program. It kind of stitches all those ideas together. And they have a website and they have resources on their web page as well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about money. If we could just put a little bit finer uh, detail on that. Can you give us a little dollars and cents about how some of these grant programs work? Like what's the what's the match requirement? What's the grant amount? How do they actually get involved in that uh, from a dollars and cents point of view? Yeah, yeah, it's great because everybody's a little cash strapped, right, these days. Um, uh, you know, the Department of State, the BOA program, the Brownfield Opportunity Area program is um, probably one of the best, I think, grants available through the consolidated funding application process because they will give 90% money towards the preparation of these plans with a 10% match. Typically, it really, it depends on how big your BOA area is. And I said, you know, from 200 to 500 acres, but um, it could be even less. It could be 50 acres to 500 acres, but around, it's, it's significant money. You can get between say 150,000 to 200,000 dollars to do a very extensive plan with a lot of detail as Matt said you know we provide a lot of detail um, so that that plan at the end of the day is is useful and is spurring redevelopment with a 10% match so let's say you get a $165,000 grant it's costing you 16,500 on the uh, community side is the match to get a very robust plan um that's and that's the annual program now through the consolidated funding application process, usually due in July. So you have to start getting kind of your ducks in a row in, in probably May or June. Uh, and then the US EPA also has um, funding. Uh, they call it site assessment funding. So you can get money to actually go and do phase one and phase two environmental assessments on properties and also this reuse planning. And really, if you can marry those two um, funding sources together, you're really having a huge impact on your community. Believe the EPA uh, is usually on an annual basis, uh, usually around this time of year that the grants are due. Sure, yeah. Well, let's just say you had a community, you know, you've been working with the community for a while and they're ready to take the steps to move forward with Brownfield. Uh, and, and they're lucky enough to get one of these grants. Can you just walk us through what's the process? What are, what are the steps in redevelopment that the community will take doing one of these area-wide plans or one of these Brownfield Opportunity Area plans? Yeah, you know, I, it, um, I try to simplify simplify that in, you know, a few short steps, right? There's a lot, lot to each step, of course, but, you know, the first step is establishing a really good, strong, what we call a steering committee. Not a lot of people, eight to 10 people um, from your community could be elected if, uh, officials, but because these areas involve so many properties, it'd be really great if you can get some of the private property owners on on the committee, real estate brokers, because ultimately this is about redevelopment, right? These are about bringing these properties back on the tax rolls, producing jobs, producing taxes for the municipality. So we really want business interests, um, environmental interests, depending on where the you know the the area is. If it's on a waterway, it might be a, a, a friends of you know a certain waterway, if what have you. Um, the second step is you got to define that area, right? Um, you will have defined your area in your application process, but you re revisit it. Does this still make sense? Are we missing anything? Any key properties? Um, the third step is once you have that area, is, is what's going on, right? What's what's the evaluation and what are the physical conditions in there in terms of uh, what type of infrastructure? Are there any transportation needs? Are there rail lines and highways and local roads? What's the land use, what's the zoning? Because that's a critical piece, right? If we're thinking about redevelopment, what's the zoning allowing or not allowing? Um, and then the other piece, you know well, because we, this is what you do, 
uh, is the market analysis. But this to me is a key piece to, to BOA plans, and that is to have uh, an understanding of the market opportunities. Um, and that's where you know, MRB comes in on our teams and, and so that we know what's supportable. Can we do housing? Can we do office? Can we do light industrial? And that's what you help us answer, Michael, in terms of the existing conditions. And then the last big piece on the, the evaluation is really what are the environmental conditions from a tabletop analysis? So we're not digging holes. We're not going on properties. We're looking at historical information like Sanborn maps and other phase one environmental assessments that might've been completed and getting a general understanding from the history of the area, what we might find environmentally on some of these key sites. And the um, and then the next step, which is the fourth step is to engage the community. So once we understand, have a good understanding of this area, uh, we then go and engage the community. And what do they think? What do they want to see? Uh, what what are some of their ideas? And we say there's you know no bad ideas. Everybody can provide ideas. But back in our shop, we have to filter it, right? It's like making soup. We bring all this information in. We have all this information, but we still have to evaluate the input against the reality of the market, for example. Somebody might say, well, we want a big giant office building. And we might say, well, there isn't really appetite for office absorption in this area. So it's more of a residential area or what have you. Um, but engaging the community is really important um, because that gets them involved and in knowing and, and feeling ownership. Um, so I said, you know, it's like making soup. Um, and one of the last plans is to, uh, last steps is to um, create a master plan. So we take all this information and literally draw uh, a master plan, a two-dimensional, sometimes three-dimensional plans of new buildings, parking, trees, street improvements, access, trails, all the things that we want to put together in the, in the BOA plan. So it is about key properties, but it's really about that whole area. Um, and then Lastly, the very last step is once we have that plan that's based on reality and based on public input, we can use that plan to market to the to the development community and say, look, we've done all this work. We have an understanding of what's here. We these properties are strategic in their redevelopment. And here's how they can be redeveloped. And here's how it can actually look. And that's the power of the BOA program at the end of the day. Sure. And hopefully we'll have a little time at the end to talk about some success stories uh, about how this program has worked out for different communities. But, but before we do, you know, I often hear a couple of things and, and some couple of obstacles, quote unquote, to this process that people get a little hung up on. One is environmental liability, right? Should a community be worried about environmental liability concerns if they start getting involved in brownfield redevelopment, number one. And then number two, some folks have, you know, a view that it, this is a private sector thing. We shouldn't be involved. Why are we, why are we getting in the middle of things here? So you can you just talk to those two different potential obstacles moving forward. Yeah. You know, yeah, there are concerns with that, you know, environmental liability. We'd be silly to say that there aren't right. You have to recognize those things. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of nice New York state programs now that can protect the, the, the purchaser of the property, even if it's a community. Um, and there's, you know, the, the voluntary cleanup program where you work with the DEC to clean up, uh, clean up the property to a certain standard, and then you get a release of that liability. So there is a process. Um, some other states have a different process, but there's also a level of what standard are you cleaning up to? Do you want um, a single family residential unit on that area? That's a very high standard that you need to clean to. Um, or can it be, say, an, a, a reuse for an industrial uh, complex? That's not as high a standard to to clean to. So, you know, there are place, there are things in place on the state side 
you know, for on the liability piece on the private side, there's also the Brownfield cleanup program. So private individuals can work with the DEC on contaminated property, again, cleaning to a certain plan that you lay out with the DEC, but then you get tax credits at the end. So um, it can help on some of these private developers to be able to make the bottom line work basically, right? Their re return on investment. Um, so Yes, you know, there's concern, but there are programs and systems in place that guide and protect and allow these sites to be redeveloped. Otherwise, we would never see these sites redeveloped. <laughs> you know, yeah. second question, you know, is it how, why, you know, why should we be doing it as the public sector when it's a private sector? You know, these sites are it's extremely complicated, right? All the easy sites have been developed upon, you know, likely. So right. it's complicated and this BOA money can be really helpful in terms of um, identifying and doing some kind of due diligence at a high level to help the private sector. It gives them that nudge. It gives them the confidence, right? So a mm -hmm. private sector individual can be like, oh, this community really cares and they're doing all this work because they want to see this area revitalized. And now the private sector person owning that property has the confidence to then invest in that property. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a true public-private sector, you know, a, a partnership, I would say. Sure. And, and on that exact topic, it's a good segue to, to the, something that kind of popped up here, which is, let's say we do have a private property owner of, of maybe one of our significant brownfields, like a real key property in our community that we're concerned about. But, you know, the private property owner is kind of hesitant to get involved. They themselves are worried about, you know, what is this going to mean? And am I going to have to pay for this and that and the other? Are there some strategies you can suggest if, if a community finds itself in that situation of a, of a recitant, you know, property owner? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's hard because I think there is always one in every boa no, that we <laughs> um, it, One of the things that starts with that steering committee, if you can get that person on your steering committee, it seems counterintuitive, but at the end of the day, it's helpful because if they see this process and see how thorough it is and how helpful it can be, they'll begin to relax. You know, the shoulders are go down and they're relaxing yeah. and they're going to see that this can actually be helpful um, in getting money for the redevelopment for their property, getting interest in the redevelopment of their property. If they're not willing to come in at the beginning, certainly reaching out to them as a key stakeholder, because that's exactly the what a stakeholder you would define one as. Um, and it, you, you typically you can get, that, get, get to them right, and have a conversation. That first conversation might be brief, um, but you keep going back, right? We had one in a, a project we were doing in Pittsburgh, Kansas, huge property owner. They actually lived in California and we met with them in the beginning. They wouldn't, they weren't on the steering committee, but we met with them in the beginning and we met with them throughout the entire process, kept them brief, sent them information, sent them the master plan at the end of the day. A lot of conversations that we had. And then that opened the door for the municipality to keep talking with them as well. And at the end of the day, they were really more comfortable with like, oh, okay, I think this process actually might help us. Mm -hmm. And they were, came to the table. So it takes pa uh, patience yeah. <laughs> and diligence uh, mm -hmm. to keep talking with them too. And 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 don't don't be nervous or scared. Like you have to, you know, we have to bring them into the conversation in any way, shape, or form that we can do that. Right. No one's showing up with a, a bill to be paid or a you know, a, an ax to grind about something. It's really about what, how can we help you move the property forward? I think is. Right. Is I think once well, they understand that it's been, been helpful. Yeah. Well, I do want to get to success stories, but I do have one more question I wanted to ask. Uh, and I'm actually a little bit curious about your answer to this one, which is, you know, the public, right? We have our elected officials, we have our property owners, we have our stakeholders, that kind of thing. But John Q public, 
how do they get involved in a process like this? What you, you mentioned a few things before, but I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, there's a, you know, a big toolbox there uh, that we use everything from in-person meetings when we can <laughs> uh, and uh, online meetings as well. Um, and we usually have, like you just said, stakeholder interviews or groups of people would like, uh, would like uh, of like interest. Uh, but we also do, um, you know, we did this, uh, Michael, in the city of Albany, we did what we call the three-day immersion, and we go down and we walk around the area um, in, the, in the morning and in the afternoon with the municipality, staff, elected leaders, the public can come along uh, at any point. We kind of debrief at the end of the day and we go back out the next day with some more knowledge and we refine. It's a refinement process to really get to those ideas. That's a really nice thing to do, especially during the pandemic where we were outside and safely social distance. Um, we're also doing a lot of online engagement. Um, so we're able to do online surveys that are fun and easy to take <laughs> short. And uh, that, uh, that's been tremendous. We're getting hundreds of people participating in those, what we call a virtual open house, um, as opposed to in-person only, where we might get 30 to 50 would be a good good one. So going forward when we can, I see a hybrid because it is nice to be there in person to be able to answer questions, uh, but also the virtual open house. If you don't have a lot of time, you have 15 minutes in your day and you want to take the survey and, and provide information, we do that. So those are those are some key points and we have you know some other ones as well, but Staying in touch with the public often, frequently during the project is key. Sure, yeah. I will say that City of Albany tour, one of my favorite ever site visits. They got us all those um, city bikes. Yes. A whole fleet of them and a whole bunch of consultants and public officials and different department heads all toured a larger area on bike up and down the waterfront and into the parks and so on like that. It was, it was definitely one of the highlights. Yeah, yep, it was great parallels the creek because that whole area gloversville was the glove manufacturing uh, capital of the world for a century um, yeah. so they have multiple 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 large mills along the creek and some of them are have been converted into residential uses now uh, and they got a brownfield opportunity area grant and we're working with you and uh, studying you know the possibilities of redevelopment there and we're already seeing property owners going, oh, wow, what is this? What mm -hmm. are you doing? And property owners that say to us, what can we do with our property? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we're working on that right now, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we're pulling all that information together and identifying out of, I think we had an originally about 45 sites within a, I think it was a 600-acre brownfield opportunity area. Yep. We had about mm -hmm. 45 sites. We've narrowed that down to 10 key strategic sites for redevelopment. So it's great. They also have an EPA grant mm -hmm. for those 10 strategic sites. Yeah. Uh, their environmental consultant is actually doing a phase one and phase two environmental assessments on many of those. So the we're getting real-time information on the level of contamination into our redevelopment plan. So it's a very good kind of perfect storm for that community. Yeah, and, uh, and Mayor DeSantis gets you know, one of the top awards for, for best mayors of, of a small town in upstate New York. Of course, all of our mayors are our best mayors. <laughs> but Mayor DeSantis actually wrote a book about yes. uh, about redevelopment and about sort of micro-urban areas such as Gloversville that I find fascinating and certainly could be an interesting uh, template for, uh, you know, for other communities to take a look at. So Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, what I love most about, about what you just described about the conversation you just had is, you know, these, these brownfields are these, in, in these communities, typically they have this, uh, this concern, this worry about a piece of property or about an entire area. And they tend to walk these wide circles around it, right. For years and years and years. And we'll get to that and we'll get to that. And we'll get to that. And, um, with the EPA, you know, nationwide and, and certainly New York state and other, other states, uh, we've been pretty progressive about how to tackle these things. Um, it's heartening to hear that there's a holistic approach there, right? That um, we can't get to solutions until we get to questions. And uh, and it's so exciting to to hear the work that that you're doing. We're, we we value the the certainly the partnership that we have, Elon, and the partnership that we have the, with these communities because uh, all, all you got to do is kick the ball. All you got to do is get it rolling, mm. and uh, and before you know it. Uh, you know, the community sees the possibility, the development community sees the possibility and things really start to turn around. So Lisa, can't tell you how much we appreciate your insight, your partnership and and all the expertise that you and your team bring to the table. Michael would almost literally be nothing without you. So it's <laughs> That's great. <laughs> great to have you on our team. He knows, I'm certain he knows I'm joking. We enjoy uh, with you. We're, we're great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for those who are uh, who are interested in the work that Lisa and her team are doing, catch them at www.ilanpd, that's E-L-A-N-P-D.com. And you can always catch us at mrbgroup.com or smarterlocalgov.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to Lisa and Michael for a really engaging conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Building Stronger Communities is a collaboration between MRB Group and FingerLakesOne.com. To learn more, visit www.smarterlocalgov.com and check out archived episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Look for links to all those locations in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.